you haven't seen anything like Ocu 2020. Primrose Leaf brings you the ultimate optimal eye support formula, containing more than 12 natural ingredients specifically designed and formulated to improve and maintain the health of your eyes. Ocu 2020 may help with the prevention of cataracts and macular degeneration, providing antioxidants specific for your eyes, and proper ocular pressure for those with glaucoma. Don't let the windows to your world be less than their best. Get Ocu 2020 today and start to see things in a whole new way. 844-376-0007 or primroseleaf.com. Love is a battlefield. Invincible. The Warrior. Better be good to me. The best are songs that if you were young and living through heartache to heartache during the 1980s, or even if you weren't born until decades later, chances are you know the words to every song written by the Hall of Fame songwriter, Holly Knight. And in her book, I Am the Warrior, My Crazy Life Writing the Hits and Rocking the MTV 80s. And she offers a very juicy and provocative look at her creative writing process of bringing her mega hits to life through the timeless vocals of artists such as Tina Turner, Pat Benatar, Patti Smythe, and even Rod Stewart and John Waite. How about Cheap Trick? And of course, Heart and Kiss and the list and the hits just keep going and going. While Holly Knight's songs have appeared in movies from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Thelma and Louise, 13 Going on 30, and one of my favorite movies, Dallas Buyers Club. And her songs have been licensed for popular TV shows, including Schitt's Creek, Stranger Things, Saturday Night Live, and South Park. Well, by now, you should get the picture that her songs have been in your ears for the last 40 years. Well, in 2013, Holly was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, so without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, it is time to welcome the icon, the legend, the queen of songwriting, the mistress of the melody, the incomparable Holly Knight. Welcome to the show. Wow, that was quite an intro. Thank you. I don't know if I can follow that if I'm worthy, but thank you for having me. <laughs> I think yours, your catalog of songs, uh, my goodness, uh, mega hits. I, I don't even know if the word mega is even big enough for the songs that you have written that have literally just been embedded into our hearts and minds for many, many decades now. But I want to kind of step back a little bit because I understand that at the age of 11, your grandmother and your father bought you a Steinway piano for your birthday. You still have that piano? I do. It's sitting right in my studio. And my relationship with that piano has probably lasted longer than any other human relationship. Um, and that was my second piano because I started when I was four and I took classical for 10 years and I had a little upright piano or actually it was a spinet, which is somewhere in between. And um, my piano teacher said that I needed to get a better piano with better action so I could develop stronger muscles in my fingers. And that's when we went to the Steinway showroom, which is in my book, the whole experience, how they were so sweet. And they sat there all day while I this arrogant little 11 year old sort of walked around the show and they played every piano in there. And then I came to the last one and it was like, hello, soulmate. And uh, still with me. Well, what is it, you know, what goes through your mind when you sit down to that very piano now? We're one of the same. It's sort of like if you spent a lifetime riding a bike in tandem with someone in the back and you pedal together and we have a relationship. You know, it's, it's I mean, it's an entity. It's not a person, but it's very uh, connected to me and all the memories. I mean, I've written simply the best on that piano and I studied classical on that piano and 
spilled drinks on that piano and things I can't say on the show on that piano. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as I was reading your book and your book is, well, it's very colorful, uh, very insightful. uh, And and I love the whole uh, songwriting process and I love talking to songwriters, but you are literally one of the top, one of the biggest of all time when it comes to writing monster hits but you cha- you legally changed your name to Holly Knight. Uh, did the name change help you go from Bruce Wayne to Batman? I think so. Um, I, I think I was that person anyway. So when I changed it to that name, it was very comfortable. And it was, it was sort of symbolic. I mean, I talk about it in the book as knighting myself. And um, I had it, I, it came to me in a dream. Because I was in a band, and in those days, we were all trying to think of a name that was more of a stage name. And uh, it came to me in a dream, and it just seemed so natural. After trying for weeks and months to come up with a name, I was born with Holly, so that was already my name. Um, And once I woke up, I thought, that's it. That's the name. And uh, I had a change legally probably within that two-week period, and I never looked back. I never thought of myself as anybody else. You know, as I was reading your your book, and ladies and gentlemen, her story is absolutely phenomenal. It, it is one of the best reads, uh, one of the most fun times you'll ever have reading a book and learning. You know, there, to me, there are, there are more stories when it comes to music history and movie history, and it seems like you've kind of crossed both sides. But what I loved about you, Holly, was just... As I'm reading and, and following along with your story and almost trying to put myself into your shoes, you had this uh, gumption, this unction, this way about you that nothing stood in your way. And one of my li- favorite stories is when you you were picked up on, on stage by the Beach Boys and you got to play keyboards. What was that like? That was not premeditated at all, by the way. It just something compelled me to run to the front of the stage. I was there in the audience. And I just started miming, like playing a keyboard like this, like me up there, you know. And I, I don't think, I didn't think he was gonna pull me up, and then he did. And the audience kind of pushed me up from behind, he pulled me up, and then he walked me over to a keyboard. And of all the songs I could have been playing, they were playing Good Vibrations. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And I remember him, yelling the chords into my ear and I was sort of like very smugly I was so tickled at what was going on I said I know the chords I probably everybody knows the chords and the words to that song if they're a musician but um, I played and that was very cathartic and it was an epiphany epiphany for me when I looked out into the audience and I thought this is where I need to be because it's a different view up here than from in, in the audience and because I was a performer anyway, it was very comfortable. It was very natural. And so at that point, I just wanted to be a rock star. I, songwriting hadn't even come into it. That, that came when I joined uh, my first band. Um, but at that point, I just wanted to be a performer. Yeah. And, you know, and you walk us through in your book about uh, being in a band, dealing with all of the personalities. And there mm-hmm. is there is a very deep mm-hmm. story just within uh, you know, the first, especially with Spider. And, but you were at a studio when Kiss was there and Gene Simmons asked you to play uh, on their record. Tell us about that. 
Well, we weren't complete strangers. We had the same manager, Bill Coyne. We had recently gone, and he had been, you know, for a while he'd been with Kiss. He was part of that whole image thing that created the image and the marketing. And we, everybody wanted to be managed by him, but he really liked us. And the reason that we even got his attention was because our drummer, Anton Fig, who later became uh, the drummer on The Letterman Show, that David was always talking about, and he was on that show for 20 years. Um, he ended up playing on one of the solo records for one of the KISS members, which was Ace Freely. They Each member was doing a solo record, and each, I don't know if you remember, if you ever saw, but each cover matched the other ones. They had the same look to them. And after he played on that record, he got the attention of KISS, and he actually ended up playing on two records and ghosting. So he played on Dynasty, and the same record, Kiss on Mass, that I played on. Um, so we all kind of knew each other and already met. I knew Ace quite well. As you know, in the story, I talk about all the crazy partying that we ended up doing. I mean, the 80s were crazy that way. <laughs> and it's all there in the book. And then um, I happened to be at the record plant one day when he walked out. And I knew they were in the studio. And he just looked at me and said, hey, we need keyboards on a track. Oh, do you want to come in and play? And I said, yeah. Uh, and then I just kind of said to my stupid, like, me now? And he goes, yes, now. And he opens the door for me and basically shoved me in there. And um, I played on one song. And then he said, hang on a minute. And I, I thought I was just warming up. I just, I didn't, they played it once and I played along with it. Somehow I didn't know, but they recorded it. And uh, they were in the studio. I was in the main part. They were in the control room. And they said, Doug, can you come in here? And I said, oh, God, they didn't like it. And my shot, I blew it, you know. But I didn't even get to do it yet. And he said, we love what you just played. We're done with that song. Can you stay and play on the whole record? Well, <laughs> one of the it. things, you know, one of the things that I noticed, well, and in this story, um, were, and I guess you were really, you know, really young in understanding how the music industry actually worked. Were you shocked that, you didn't get credit on that album when Gene said, you know, we have to keep up this persona to our fans. I wasn't shocked. I actually was prepared because I knew that they had already done that with Anton and he had been fine with that. Um, I mean, he got paid well and he got to tell everybody he played on the record and that was better than nothing, you know. So I was already aware of that and he had explained to me some on some other day, you know, our image is really important. You know, we're a guy band. And, and that was the other thing. The fact that I was a woman and they didn't care, which was amazing because they were known for being, you know, misogynist and heathenist. You know, they, they bragged about betting thousands of women and taking Polaroids. And so for them to just go, hey, you you fit the bill. You can do the job. We could care less if you're what, a woman, a man, whatever. Um, I thought that was pretty forward thinking of them. Uh, it gave me a level of respect that I hadn't had before. And um, I couldn't wait to go back and tell my fan, oh, my God, you're not going to believe this. I just played on the whole Kiss record. And uh, what was interesting was, because I thought no one's going to believe this, when I received the checks, I Xeroxed them. And they say Kiss on them for services rendered on keyboards or something like that. And I saved those checks for 40 years. And they're in the book. I put it in the book because it's just not, I can't even believe I saved them for 40 years. What was I saving them for? Because years later, they were bragging about it. Because once I became well known as a songwriter, they were like, yeah, she played on her record. You know, it's kind of 
cute in a way. But uh, well, what is that like to have someone like Kiss brag on you? Well, you should see what Gene said on the blurb on the back of my book. It's 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 really charming. He goes, he brags that he knows me. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, here it is, forty years later. I mean, do we have so much history? We're still friends. Um, you know, I dated after that. I dated Paul Stanley, as you know, it's all in the book. Um, and I had a lot of adventures and stories to tell. And so people kept saying, "Write a book," and I was like, "Okay, let me try it." Um, yeah, and it is a it is a fabulous book, Holly. Uh, Thank one you. area of the book, or I should say, your story. You called Mike Chapman that you were leaving Spider. His response to you set you free, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I thought he was going to be angry at me because he was the president of the label that our band was signed to. And I thought he'd be upset because they put a lot of money into the band. And uh, I explained to him why I was leaving the band, which I won't go into now. You can read that in the book. But uh, Well, you read it better in the book. But for those who haven't, um, I'll just tell you the details that you want to hear right now, which is... He encouraged me to pursue songwriting and he said, you know, you're a really good musician, but there's a lot of good musicians out there. There's a lot less great songwriters. And what I mean by great is they're the royalty of the business when they can write one hit after another. And I think that you can do that. Um, he, we had already written one song together, which was Better Be Good To Me, and Spider recorded that on the second record. It became the second single for Tina Turner uh, about, I want to say, a year later when she did the Private Dancer record. So we already knew that we had chemistry. So he said to me, if we, if, if I moved out to California, we could write together. Um, and if he was producing a record, even if he wasn't the writer and they needed to look for an outside tune, if they couldn't come up with it themselves, I would have a direct line to that record which was great um he said i'll introduce you to people which he did he was a great publisher actually in addition to being a great producer and for those that don't really know who i'm talking about it's mike chapman and mike chapman was a very successful um producer that had done all the bonding records he did the knack with my sharona he did hot child in the city with nick gilder who he introduced me to and that ended up being we wrote together for Patty Smythe for The Warrior. So um, a lot of things sort of led from being in the band, meeting Mike Chapman, leaving the band, and then aligning with Mike. And then I started writing a lot of other people outside of him. And that's really, that's sort of the, tr the first part of the book. So I call the first part of the book sort of the film noir, second, which is New York gritty. I'm from New York. Um, and then when I get to California, it's like Fuji Color. I call it Fuji Color. And right around the time of Fuji Color, because LA was so crazy and bright and blue skies, where New York is black and white, um, I, you know, the M MTV was born. And once MTV was born, that was the best thing that ever happened to me, because I had so many different bands at the same time doing videos that were very popular. And so this book is focused on that MTV era, like from 1980 to 1990. So everything that happened afterwards, I just sort of put in the afterward. But I really wanted to focus on the MTV period because it was so special. And not a lot has been written about it from 
an insider's viewpoint, you know. Um, and it was such a crazy fun time. You know, in the ni- 1990s, things started to change and get more serious. And we had, you know, consequences for all the behavior we, we had in the 80s. Uh, but it wasn't as much fun, you know. Yeah, you know, I- I'm a person that absolutely loves the, uh, the music from the mid to late 70s. And, but the 80s was was well it it was elevated to the fact because of mtv and i and i think we all know that there are probably some artists that would have never been famous if it wasn't Mm -hmm. for mtv but you and mike wrote love is a battlefield for pat benatar Mm -hmm. what did you learn about letting a song go and have someone make it different than your original vision or version uh, well, I go into great de- detail in the book about that. Uh, it was hard, you know, because I was new at this. It was hard. It's sort of like, you know, when you write a song, before you let it out into the world, before you let everybody sort of give their opinion of it's a hit, it's not a hit, I love it, I'm not loving it, it's too pop, it's not pop enough, it's too long, it's not this, it's not, you know. Before you get all that stuff it's safe. It's your little baby in your home and you're nurturing it and you're loving it. And then the moment of truth comes where you have to put it out into the world and let people start to judge it or love it or whatever. And it's sort of like putting a baby up for adoption. You know, you, you know that it needs to find a home, but you hope like hell that they're not going to screw it up. You know? Well, and, yeah. And you were surprised yeah. how when Neil sent the song back, I think you and Mike just basically looked at each other like, what is this? Yeah, we did. We we didn't like it at all when we first heard it. And we were just trying to process, like, why he changed it. He didn't change the, the song itself. All the elements were there. The lyrics, you know, the, the music. He changed the production. So we gave him the song. He likes to say that it was a ballad, but it was not a ballad. It was a mid-tempo, eighth-note kind of feel, which is sort of my forte, if you will, or was back then. And um, it was like meat and potatoes, like a like a, like an anthemic epic song, like Game of Thrones or something, you know? And what we got back was a dance track, and it was faster, and it sort of had a lot of synthesizers and noises in it that we just we hated um but we still could tell it was going to be a hit and it had pat's vocal which is the most important thing Her vocal was magnificent and we learned to love it as it started going up the charts we loved it a little more and a little more and so now you know now it's quintessentially an 80s too it would i would someone said to me in an interview the other day i was surprised when i heard that because it wasn't as rock as some of the things Pat Benatar had been known for, and I agreed with that. We gave them a rock track, you know, because she's such a great rock singer, and that's why it was kind of a shock. But I will say that more times than not, we like the productions. I like the productions. Even There's even been one or two where I actually like their version more than the demo, because the demos are were always quite simple, you know. And, um, for instance, when John Waite did uh, Change, I actually like his version more than the version I did with Spider, which is who I originally wrote it for. So, yeah, and the, <laughs> and and I love that song "Change." Uh, mm. But you know, with Thank the you. '80s and literally the MTV era, when MTV literally played music videos, and 
you know, and we would watch them for hours and hours and things like Live Aid and the list just goes on and on. What do you think your songwriting career would have been like if MTV never existed? Well, you could ask that about everybody, really. (laughs) It took everything to a new level. And a lot of people that maybe, I think what happened was in in the beginning was good, but as it evolved, it sort of shifted where almost like the video and the visual is more important than the content of the music. You know, people started worrying more about how they looked. Things were getting choreographed and there were a lot of distractions to sell the song, whereas before it was always about the music, you know. Um, So in that way, it was it, it, it was good and it was bad. But for me, it was just nothing but good because I would either get asked by an artist to write a song for them or we would write something together and then um i didn't have to wait a super long time for the song to come out and they would make the video in a few days and boom it would be out there and if it was a video that people liked and it went into heavy rotation it could sit there for like six months you know and then i think mtv got sort of fascinated with the fact that behind this sort of certain style of song was a woman which was an anomaly in the business, you know. And not only because I was a woman, but the fact that they were even talking about the songwriter, because most people think that the band writes the music, you know, to this day. People think that Tina Turner wrote the best. And, you know, and a lot of times the artists like that way. They like to perpetuate the myth, if you will, and let people think that they wrote the song. So I think MTV found that fascinating. And I don't see what the shame in it. In, I could never figure that out. It's like if you're an actor, it doesn't mean you have to be a great screenwriter. The screenwriter writes something that they give to the actor and then the actor portrays it. You know, Sometimes they do both, and that's great. But there's nothing wrong with not doing it. And I think there was a great stigma at that time with the bands that were ashamed to say they couldn't come up with their own music. But the fact is, a lot of times they couldn't. Even if they had had a, a magnificent hit, there were a lot of bands that had hits. That's their best stuff, in my opinion, was their earlier work. But they had run out of steam and they wanted to still have a career. So if they needed to go outside the band to, to write with someone, to me, it wasn't a big deal because they were going to let people think they wrote it anyway. So I just figured I was there to help, you know? Yeah, and you had, a, you had an interesting, um, well time especially when uh when aerosmith's song ragdoll which was originally titled ragtime and Mm -hmm. that was an interesting time for you yeah well um specifically you mean as a songwriter or as a person well taking someone else's song and making changes oh oh, i see what you mean yeah that was a really unusual circumstance and i don't like to write like that but i agreed to because i wanted to work with aerosmith Um, but they had a song that was pretty much finished and their a and r guy john Kladner, they'd signed a new deal with uh, geffen records he had a little bit more control because they just stopped doing all these drugs they had a new record deal and he had a lot of say and like look if you want a second shot because they were almost over at that point um you want a second shot you're going to listen to me so here's what i suggest and he put them together with a few people not a lot but the few people that were getting put together with the bands we were all kind of like we all knew each other sometimes we wrote together when we weren't busy competing with each other um we were friends some of them we weren't friends with but and some of them are still really good friends of mine you know 
like there was Desmond Child and Billy Steinberg. Those were two people that were kind of satellating around the same records as I was. Um, and as I wrote in the book, I was the anomaly at the time. Um, I was the only woman doing it. Uh, but because I had been in a band myself and because I was a, you know, a serious uh, musician, I kind of understood the whole rock thing. And that's what made it easy for me to sort of blend in with them when I would write with them. And I would try and write something that sounded like something they would have written on a good day, you know, or when they were younger. That was the part that I really tried to hone in on. Um, but in this case, I was just sort of brought into Tighten the Screw and turned a song that was an album track into a hit. And, to, and when he sent me the track, the first thing I said was, Are, is the band okay with that? Is Steven okay with that? He said, oh yeah, I talked to him. He's going to call you. He's fine. He understands why this needs to happen and he's fine with it and he's curious. So then Steven called me up and we talked for two weeks every day. It was just one of those magical periods where you happen to have some time. And I thought, this will never happen again, because if this record is big, he's going to be out of here and he's going to just get bigger and bigger. And, you know, that time that we had together with those phone calls and stuff was really, it was really sweet and, and magical. And then I flew up to Vancouver and I really didn't want to change the song that much. I thought the song was great. I thought the track was great. Um, but by the time I finished rewriting, you know, some of the lyrics with him and the title, he was ready to go cut it. And I was there when he cut the vocal, which was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and then and it the gets song... racy from there, which I can't really talk about. Right. And, and the, the song Ragdoll ended up being a, a huge hit for Aerosmith and basically, I mean, brought him back. But you, yeah. you know, in the 80s, if I was to pick right off the top of my head, mega hit songwriters for during the 80s, it would be you, Desmond Child, Elton John and Bernie Toppin. To me, I think that is the top three when it came to the 80s, because by gosh, I mean, I know the songs. I've, I've seen your list. I've seen Desmond's list. And of course, we all know Elton and, and Bernie. My gosh, I mean, the 80s. Y'all ruled the 80s. And we all, I worked with Bernie and Desmond. I worked with both of them. In fact, when I was first in Spider, Desmond's band, which was Desmond Child and Rouge, used to open up for my band Spider. That's how I first met him. And neither one of us knew, well, I can't speak for him, but neither one of us was writing. We were trying to be, you know, the band, the act at the time. And it's sort of funny how we both went in that direction at the same time. Yeah, now I've noticed that uh, you stated uh, in your book that you still have unrecorded songs sitting on ice. Have you ever thought of recording them yourself and putting out a solo record? Um, also, and I'm going to add to this question to you because have you ever thought of recording a songwriter's collection of all of the mega hits you've written with you singing them in the way that you envisioned them the first time? Well, here's the thing. I know my strengths and I know my weaknesses. And if I was the sort of singer that could sing, I've worked with some of the best. So that's where the bar is. So for me to sing like Lou Graham or Steven Tyler or, or Ann Wilson, I can't do that. So if, if I could do that, I would, have been, I would have been the performer. So I knew that my strength was the writing and I'm just fine with that. You know, I kind of like the idea of being behind the scenes. What's ironic is here it is now I have a book out. And so I'm having to do the interviews and the, all the things that I was running away from, you know, um, 
because then you have to start thinking about other things like how you're coming across, if you sound intelligent, you know, all that stuff. So um, I've just resolved myself that, well, you have to do that if you want people to know about your book. Well, but as far as singing, I, I don't yeah. consider myself a great singer. I, that being said, I've sung, for instance, when I wrote Love Touch for Rod Stewart, I sung all the backups on that. In fact, I sung the backups before he, he asked me to sing the backups before he would sing the vocal. Um, I've stood two inches away from Tina Turner and sung on, on a song I wrote called One of the Living because they asked me to. They said, I love it. Will you sound on the demo? Come in. I want you to sing. So I never even really thought of myself as a singer. Um, but I guess I was good enough that, that, that I was able to sing with these mega stars, you know. But as far as lead singing, no. I don't. I don't really like doing that because, like I said, I'm not. I don't consider myself to be that great a singer. Well, but you know, I am doing new material all the time, and um, I'm, I'm producing a new band right now that I help put together, which is called Lit Crush, and it's a band all of virtuoso women. Uh, because we haven't seen a lot of female bands, all female bands. I mean, it's a shame that we have to label it like female, but the truth is there still are no monster, commercially successful bands filled with women that are gorgeous and can do it all, you know, and play. You know, the guitarist, for instance, is uh, a virtuoso player. She lives in Germany. We flew her over to record with her, and she's a protege of Steve Vai. If you know who he is, so I, I've interviewed like Steve that. twice. Right. Okay. Great. Yeah, he's a friend of mine. <laughs> he's a sweetheart as well. And um, the lead singer is Lena Hall, who won a Tony for Hedwig and the Angry Inch. She starred on the show called Snowpiercer, and she's an amazing rock singer. In fact, um, I, if anybody happens to listen before the nineteenth, I'm doing a show in New York City. If you happen to be in that area at the cutting room and it's basically a book release party where i'm reading some excerpts from the book and lena will be singing as will patty Smythe, who is the og singer of the warrior and uh, so that ought to be fun and i'll be i'll be selling uh, signing books and selling them at a discount but uh, yeah lena lena's terrific so that's one of my projects. I have lots of things that I do, but I don't wake up every day now. Oh, I have to write a song. You know, I have many interests. So. Well, that's awesome. I'm, what, what... I'm curious to see what happens after this book has been out for a little bit, because I'm getting a lot of questions about other projects that would sort of come out of this, which is exciting. Yeah. And I would I would expect that to actually happen because I am so glad you decided to write the book. To write Thank your you. story, and but let's talk about the warrior. Okay. So with Nick Glider, so Mike Chapman, which I Nick found Gil this extremely uh, interesting. Yeah, Nick Glider. You wrote it with Gil Nick Glider, but Mike Gil Chapman wasn't all that thrilled the day he listened, but then he wanted to hear it again and knew it was a hit. Now I know people can be mentally somewhere else when they first mm -hmm. hear a demo or and then pass on it. Uh, someone can hear the same song and it's a hit to them. So how frustrating was that? How, how frustrating has that been in your career when people would hear something the first time and just kind of like, nah, not interested. And you knew in your heart that they needed this song. But that happens all the time. I mean, welcome to my world. That happens all the time. I can't tell you how many songs I have 
in my so-called vault that have not been cut that are amazing tunes. I think some of my best work. So that's part of being a songwriter, you know, because it has to be a good fit. And you don't know, like you said, on any given day, someone could be distracted because they lost a ton of money in the stock market or they woke up and their back was killing them, you know? So that actually comes into play. But yeah, when Mike heard the song and he said, yeah, it's okay. I was very disappointed because not every song back then did I think was a hit, but I knew this one was a really good one. And he'd asked me to write something for Patty. And I was just trying to think of like, what does she, what does she mean to me? And so I wanted to write an empowering song because she was such a strong, feisty little, you know, she, she was full of piss and vinegar and I loved that. So I wanted to write something that was just sort of outside the box, but really strong for a woman. And um, Nick was actually okay that, that Mike didn't hear it as a hit because he wanted to keep it for himself. Nick Gilder had a hit called Hot Child in the City that he had done with Mike Chapman uh, years earlier, a few years earlier. And um, he wanted to keep it for himself, but Mike then decided to play hardball once he decided it was a hit because I think a week went by and he called me up and he said... Uh, this song's a hit, and I'm cutting it. And I thought, this is the same person a week ago that said, eh, you know. <laughs> well, I've noticed that with some of your songs, there is a theme of having a sound of an anthem. And, you know, I Am the Warrior is one of those. In a way, even the best comes across uh, with that powerful anthem type a mm -hmm. vibe that hits all of us and we want to sing it. And what's it like for you to, to write a song for an artist, but it ends up being their signature? What's not to love? I mean, and especially with the name like the best, how do you top that? You know, um, it's taken a life on a life of its own over the years. So when it first came out, it was sort of a hit. I mean, I was spoiled at this point. So I think it went to number 16, which to me was a failure, you know, if it wasn't in the top five. Uh, now, nowadays, it's different. It's just so much harder. There's so much more records and material out there that even 16 is very respectable. Um, and it went to number one in like other parts of the world, but it was really over decades of building up and building up and spreading its tentacles around the world that it became this sort of highly licensed monster of a tune. And Tina has been, you know, quoted as saying that she liked to re be remembered uh, by that particular song because it's positive, you know? We all have learned of her story and everything, and she doesn't want to be a victim. So to be able to sing something positive for her is joyous. And I think that's what everybody feels when they sing that, you know? It's like one of the songs that you, feel, you can't help but just feel wonderful when you sing it you know yeah, whatever and, you're singing it about That's... yeah and you know and in your book and, and i want to quote uh, a sentence in your book based on the song the best and you wrote the chords moved while the bass line pedaled on the same note creating tension the building up of something and this was in reference to you writing the best um and then you said years later it dawned on me that was sort of a signature of mine. So it took you that long right. to realize that you had this 
the special vibe, your, your own signature that would be in your songs? It had to be pointed out to me a few times. Um, when I was younger, I would say probably, I was probably in my 20s and I was sort of really having this big surge of success. What was so amazing was it was happening all at once. It wasn't just like, oh, I had a hit with this. I had a hit like here and then here and then here. Like when those, what do they call those Venn diagram things? You could, they were all sort of connected. Um, but this one interviewer said to me, how come all your songs are about fighting? I'm really interested to know about that. And I looked at him, I said, my songs aren't all about fighting. Some of them have those kinds of titles, but he said, no, it's not a bad thing. It's really compelling. I want to know more about it. Yeah. I didn't really know I had an answer because I hadn't realized it. So when I went home, I thought about, I looked up some songs, uh, you know, The Warrior, Invincible, Better Be Good to Me, um, Love is Battlefield. And I thought, my God, he's right. He's absolutely right. How, how, how would I miss that? Because I was doing it on sort of autopilot. It was a big part of, you know, you've read the book, so you know, if you knew my my beginnings, it would make sense. You know, yes. things, and... their characters get formed in their first 10 years. It's the, the blueprint for the rest of their life. And I came from a difficult, uh, a, a very sort of educated and affluent family, but I had an abusive mother and she was physically abusive. I don't really talk too much about it in the book. I just sort of give one example and move on. And I only share it so that you know who I am. And I'm honest about it. It's a pretty raw uh, passage in the book. But I also said, I have come to realize that a lot of women I know that are successful women, they all had abusive mothers. It was like a thing back then. And I said, I almost feel cliche even mentioning it because everybody else I know that has a book that's been out there that's a lot, not all of them, but quite a few of them. If they were lucky, they had a, a really nurturing home. But if, if not, they have the same stories. And I think what it's done for all of us, it's made us fighters and survivors, you know. And as I say in the book, survivors always have the best stories. So going back to the thing about writing about fighting, I realized I'm not writing about fighting with people. I'm writing about fighting for something. So all of a sudden I realized about this last name, Knight, which I stumbled on. And I'm writing about the things that I think I deserve in my voice and want. And I think that's where I tapped into most especially women and empowerment without meaning to. It wasn't like I had this whole thing mapped out it's just kind of unfolded organically you know um, yeah and i agree with yeah. that because you know reading your book um it and ladies and gentlemen you have to realize when you read a book just don't read the surface read it and feel it get into the emotion thank you so of, much for saying that seriously because that's how we learn about others and and that's how we be that's how we appreciate other people and appreciate their story, appreciate where they're coming from. So Holly, as I was reading your book, I noticed something within the pages that went beyond your life, your songwriting, all the huge hit songs. I noticed that the little girl inside you is still alive and in awe of every moment during your magical climb to the top of rock music history. What is that little girl saying to you today? I had a moment where I was in a hotel room. I had gone to London to work with Tina Turner and I'd never met her before. So they put me up in this beautiful hotel and I was lying there and saying, how did I arrive at this particular moment? I mean, I'm a songwriter and here I am. I've been flown 
to London first class to work with the biggest artists on the planet. You know, at the time she was exploding. And, and I thought, you know, I wish I could go back there and tell that little girl that was so frightened, just stay put. Because in about 20 years, you're going to have the most amazing opportunities in life. And all these things that you're going through, they're gifts. Because, you know, adversity is a gift because it makes you want to do better and rise above and create greatness. You know, the, the other stuff is like eating ice cream. Oh, this is good. This is so great. It's like going to Hawaii on a vacation. But it's the, the adversary moments that really are the ones, you know, that the term, what doesn't kill you, makes you stronger is very true. You know, yeah. I still, I like to keep that childlike innocence. I don't, I don't even know if it's I like to. It's just who I am. I'm sort of like a nut. I'm hard on the outside sometimes, but soft and yummy on the inside, you know? You said it. You literally said it because at, when I was reading your book and and thinking about all the things that you've done, the things, how you reached out, you, you, you know, there were, there were steps of faith, but then there was fate all mixed together. And I, I was, I was picturing this, this woman that was, she's confident, but there is this fragileness, uh, inside. And I'm not going to call it an insecurity. We all, we all have an insecurity, not that we write it down on pages, but there, there's a confidence, but then there was something else. And like I said, it's the little girl inside of you. And I also noticed how appreciative you were when, if it was an artist you got to meet, if it was an artist that you got to, to write with, you wrote with Rod Stewart, John Bon Jovi. My gosh, the list just goes on and on with your storied career. Um, am I getting that right? Yeah, I never stopped being a fan, you know? Uh, and, and because I appreciated who they were and how they influenced me and the fact that I was now older and getting to work with them, I felt honored you know that's not to say it was that way with everybody and when people were like you know being assholes to me i had no problem just speaking up at that point i was always sort of very to this day you know people know that i'm from new york even though i've lived in california for 25 years because i always get this you're so honest you're so direct if you don't like something you don't say it in a mean way but you basically find a way to to, to say it where you're standing up for yourself because I started at a, at a time when I never stood up for myself. In fact, you know, the book is dedicated. My dedication reads um, to anybody who's ever had a dream and was told no. This is for you because that was me. And once you take control of your own life and you own it, um, nobody can steer you and say what like, can affect you. I will say though, there's still a vulnerable soft side of me because a few years ago, I had thought about the idea of writing a book and I submitted it to an attorney who represented a lot of literary authors and had connections with book publishing houses, you know? So she read it and she sent it back to me. She said, you know, I really, I think you write really well, but you're not a household name and I won't be able to get you a deal. And that kind of devastated, not devastated, almost pissed me off because it's She's like, an idiot. You know, I'm in the songwriting hall of fame. Like, how dare you talk to me like that? <laughs> um, and here's the stupid part. I listened to her. So for a year and a half, I did not write the book. I thought, well, 
dad came down the toilet. And here I am, like an older woman, listening to someone's opinion. So that's why it's so important to have that dedication, because had I listened to her, we wouldn't be talking right now, and I wouldn't have this book out that people are, I'm getting such a positive um, response and the reviews and everything, and not just from women. I mean, I'm tickled about the fact that, you know, I I did write it from a woman's perspective, because I'm a woman, and I knew that women would resonate with it and be turned on by it, you know, like, wow. You were living the dream. I live my dream, you know. Um, but men are loving it, like you know, like you. And even oh, I love the, I friends. love the book. I mean, I literally ha- I I have pages of notes that I oh, wrote wow. from your book. And I mean, as I'm reading along, I'm like, oh my gosh, you wrote that song. I mean, it's like you wrote never for heart. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the epitome of the 1980s. The hair, the guitars, the glittery clothes, the shoulder the pads. Oh my gosh. And in, and still, it was Nancy that sang lead. That was the biggest shocker. Of course, we all knew that, but by reading your story about it and becoming great friends with the uh, the Wilson sisters, mm-hmm. you know, wow. And, and I like the fact that you were being a woman and during that time being nothing but a man's world when it came to songwriting and my gosh when you got inducted into the songwriters hall of fame you were what one of only what 16 women that were in the hall of fame at that time yeah and in fact even with the women most of them were performers you know most of them were people like Joni mitchell or there were very few there were maybe three other two or three other women that wrote for a living and they weren't rock writers either I was the only one that sort of infiltrated those camps. And because they were all bad boys, and people were like, oh, how did you survive? What was that like? You know, I remember I wrote about this in the book. If you remember this part where I was working with Bon Jovi and we were all in a hotel room and, um, you know, they had a big suite or whatever. It wasn't like I was in her bedroom. Um, not those anyway. But um, I just remember I was standing next to John and Richie Sambora and Sam Kinison, the comedian, the late comedian, was there. And uh, then MTV was always on in the background. Well, it was on in their room, too. And then the video came on. And they're standing in their room singing along with their video. And I'm going, this is crazy. This is like, I feel like I'm on the other side of the looking glass, you know. and I was quite comfortable with guys. I mean, like I said, I was a tomboy. I was from New York. I had been in bands. So every time that a band would kind of apologize for the behavior, I'd look at them like, this is not my first rarity, okay? So you, you don't need to, well, you know, you to wrote, the- Yeah, and you wrote with one of the most powerful women in music, Tina Turner. You literally wrote her legacy. I mean, she will always be remembered for the best. And this song is considered your crown jewel. Are you still surprised by that? Um, well, first of all, she's not a writer. I mean, she did write one song in Ice Band, which was Natbush City Limits. She probably wrote the lyrics to that because that's kind of very personal. That's where she's from. Um, I wrote the song with Mike Chapman. She was always, she was my muse. Like she cut nine of my songs and every time a new album would happen it's like i'd I'd go to her with songs or she would call me you know 
Um, and what was interesting, it's in the book, but I, as I say, the, the, the best was not written for her, but it was meant for her. So it took this journey before it actually got to her to the point where another artist, Bar Bonnie Tyler, cut the song and it didn't really do much. And then someone from my publishing company sent it to Tina, which was strange because usually I sent things myself to her, but I hadn't really thought about her as the person that sang that song. Which is, again, it's silly because I thought, well, I already, it has already been cut by someone else and it's been recent. Why would you want to cut it? Um, it's just the whole story is strange how it got to her. It wasn't even written for Bonnie Tyler. It was written for someone else that I had a crush on for a guy. Um, which I'm not going to tell you, tell the listeners, because I want you to read the book because it's a good story. Exactly. Because, yeah. And I'm glad you said that, Holly, because, ladies and gentlemen, there are many, many more surprises. There is no way that I can sit here with Holly and cover her entire book. There are stories upon stories. There are stories inside of stories. I mean, this would, this should be a, this should be a mini series. Well, it may be. <laughs> on, it, on Netflix it, because yeah. wow. Limited mini series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the names have been changed to, to protect the innocent, right? <laughs> there are no innocent in the, except maybe me in the book. And even that's questionable. <laughs> well, in your book, and I, and I love this, how you wrote this, that in your book, the song, The Best, like you had said, wrapped up the 1980s. And I love the way that you wrote it. And you said, it was the end of the 80s when we wrote it, the last of the feel-good times on many levels, the last of excess and parting, the last of blind innocence, and a certain level of escapism and freedom. So Holly Knight, what is next for the queen of songwriting. Uh, and by the way, I never stopped writing after that. And I've had an incredible resurgence. I mean, 80s music right now is just so popular because it goes along with these 80s sort of theme shows like Glow or Stranger Things. I just got a cover with the song Obsession for American Horror Story for the new season. And it's also Obsession is in a movie called uh, Cocaine Bear. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's much yes. anticipated, harrowing movie, harrowing story. Um, so obsession seemed to work with that. If you, you, you could guess just from the title, you know. Um, and you know, so I I have ideas for another book which would be sort of more focused on songwriting because I have done some master classes and I love teaching. I, lo I love the idea of passing it on to the next. It's like, I have my shot. Let me pass what I know on to the next generation, you know? And so I want to have a book that has things on how-tos for songwriting. And they're not things that I was taught or was even, as I said before, aware of when I was doing. But now that I've been able to teach a few master classes, I can explain to people what's a copywriter, one of the most interesting things I've noticed with the, my students is they don't know what arrangements are. And arrangements, to me, are sort of the center point of writing a great song. You know, so you have a verse and you have a chorus. Maybe you have a bridge. And the question is why? What does each part accomplish? And if it's not accomplishing anything, it shouldn't be there. Because a lot of people write songs and they don't write choruses. You know, and it's like without the chorus, you don't really have a song, you know, yeah. unless it's an instrumental, of course. 
But even <laughs> instrumentally, you should have the hooks, and, and, and it should be easy to tell this is the chorus, you know. So I want to do that with photos. I'm really into photography. I'm going to do photography exhibits. So I'm into very sort of fine art photography, black and white. I travel around the world, or I did until the pandemic happened. So like everybody else, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing that. And yeah, there could be a documentary coming out of this. There could be, um, yeah, a lot of things. That, and I'm glad to be one of the people to let people know about that special time. There's, there hasn't been much documentation or talk about MTV and the younger generation didn't even realize what it was. You know, they, some of them don't even know what a VJ is, you know, they've gone on TikTok and social media. And I think everybody just needs to slow down. The other thing that I love about my book is, um, and, and people are telling me this as well, is it's a fun read. It's not like hard work. And in fact, I wrote a hundred pages more than what ended up in the book. And I had a really good editor who, uh, his name is Jacob Hay, from my publishers, who was brilliant. And he just, he kept taking things and saying, no, make it so interesting. It's like, it's that idea of leave the party while it's still good. So it's not like it says a bunch of stuff that happened to me and then it just starts to meander and it gets more like a, a Wikipedia read instead of something fun and juicy, you know? Yeah. Um, and the book yeah. is fun. The book, the, the book is it's fun, it's entertaining, it's enlightening, it's educational, informative. Uh, and many of you who watch uh, my show or, or, you're, or you're listening to the replays online, ladies and gentlemen, many of you contact me because you're a musician, you're a songwriter, and you need to be inspired. And you want to be inspired, you got to be inspired by the best. And no pun intended, but Holly Knight is the best. She wrote the best. This is a book you need to read to ignite your own dream. You know, you need to pour the gasoline on the fire. And we all have that fire burning inside of us. And for those of you who are in the music industry or in music and love it and, and dream of making it big, well, we're not here to extinguish that dream. We want to fuel that dream and holly knight's book i am the warrior is one of those so right now i want you to go to hollyknight.com for more information and if you are a music lover uh, or a lover of music history you have to get holly's brand new book i am the warrior my crazy life writing the hits and rocking the mtv 80s and thank you holly for your time today thank you so much also, I just want to tell you, there's a lot of great, uh, I don't know if you can see this here, photos of the people. A lot of fun with like Tina Turner, Rod Stewart, Don Johnson, Bon Jovi, Steven Tyler, moi. Uh, just like lots of pages, Patty Smythe, another one. This is when Tina did my hair in Germany. She wanted to do my hair one night. Well, you know, and, and I also and, wanted to mention that yes. um, I did the audiobook, and that's out. So that's on Audible. I narrated it. And what's really cool about the audio uh, version is that there are never before heard demos of some of my biggest songs, like The Best and Love is a Battlefield and The Warrior. So that's got a little extra bonus. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, again, you go to hollyknight.com, the book, buy it. You will, 
you will be amazed. And I can just add adjective upon adjective because I love Holly's book. I love music history. Thank you so much. And it's been an absolute honor. So ladies and gentlemen, I am the warrior, my crazy life, writing the hits and rocking the MTV 80s. So I leave you with this. Holly, you're simply the best, better than all the rest, better than anyone. <laughs> so as for me, ladies and Thank gentlemen, you so much. you're very welcome. And I'm going to see you next time.